Gravitational waves are pretty exciting. We've got this new way to observe the universe in an entirely new spectrum. It's like before we could see the universe and now we can hear the universe thanks to gravitational waves. And we've got the ground-based observatories like LIGO and Virgo and Kagra, but there's a new space-based observatory under development called LISA, the Laser Interferometry Space Antenna. It's being developed by the European Space Agency. And it feels like it's it's just going to take forever, like it's going to launch in 2035. But when it does, it will be able to observe colliding supermassive black holes, maybe be able to see the primordial gravitational waves of the universe itself, the aftershocks of the Big Bang. It'll be an amazing observatory to add to the collection. But what comes after Lisa? Well, my guest today is Dr. Waldemar Martins from the European Space Agency, and he is proposing a version of LISA called LISA Max, and it would have arms that extend from the Earth-Sun L3, 4, and 5 Lagrange points, creating this gigantic equilateral triangle where each arm is about 250 million kilometers long, producing a gravitational wave observatory that is just ludicrously large. So I talked to Dr. Martins about the history of gravitational wave observatories, what is going on with LISA, and what LISA Max could do to take those observatories to the next level. Enjoy the interview. I've been following LISA for much of my professional career. And it feels like it's just unfolding in, in slow motion. It feels like it's never going to launch. <laughs> and yet, you know, and even now, 2035 is when we could see Lisa. How is Lisa doing? Is it going to happen? I think it's more likely than ever <laughs> that it's going to happen. Um, yeah, as, as you say, there's a long history to Lisa. It started like in the probably in the 70s were the first ideas. Um, and then when it first became a project, a NASA project, and then it was canceled because of funding cuts, uh, because um, James Webb became so expensive and NASA had to decide, well, we have to take priorities. And so the LISA program was kind of um, canceled. And then it was resumed by ESA um, as a descope mission slightly smaller, um, but now it seems like we're almost back. Yeah, we're, we're actually back to the original mission. It's just that it's under the lead of Ezer and um, with NASA as a junior partner. So I think it's more likely than ever that it's actually going to happen. And for people who aren't familiar, what will LISA be? So LISA is a gravitational wave detector, which means that it's going to measure gravitational waves which are similar to or yeah similar to electromagnetic waves like light or um, x-rays or infrared light that we are much more used to in astronomy but gravitational waves are a new type of um, way of looking into the universe so um, to explain a bit what gravitational waves are, so they have been predicted by Einstein by Einstein, a hundred years ago, um, and they were measured the first time in 2015 by LIGO and Virgo. These are two ground-based detectors, and gravitational waves are essentially ripples in the fabric of space-time. So, um, to to draw an, an 
an analogy which is not perfect but maybe sufficient. Um, if you imagine water waves, um, if you imagine a perfectly still ocean and then you put two boats at a certain distance um, on that ocean and then you see a water wave passing by and then this water wave will cause the boats, the distance between the two boats slightly to um, change. So if they had a rope attached to each other, they will would see that the tension of the rope would um, um, fasten and then um, go back again. And essentially that's what gravitational waves are to space, so to space-time. Space is not a fixed background as we, as Newton was thinking, but it's kind of a flexible um, substance that can bend on its own. And gravitational waves are just propagations of these um, ripples of space-time. And, and Lisa, like with the LIGO detector, I mean, we got those first detections of colliding black holes several years ago. We saw the kilonova, but there are the limits to what LIGO, even advanced LIGO, and is capable of. What range of gravitational wave detections is Lisa going to be capable of, of finding? Yeah, so it's not so much that LIGO or, or LISA is, um, um, that LISA and LIGO are competitors, they are complementary instruments. So LIGO is capable of measuring gravitational waves in the tens of hertz to several kilohertz range. So gravitational waves also have a frequency similar to sound waves or electromagnetic waves. And LIGO measures gravitational waves, if you will, in the audible range. So if we could make them audible, we could, we could hear them. And that's what they actually do. They can, they can hear the, the gravitational waves if they convert them to audio. Yeah, I've heard and, that before. It's really cool. Yeah. And that is related to the arm length of the detector. So LIGO works as a Michelson interferometer, which means that you have two arms which are arranged perpendicular to each other. The arm length is three three or four kilometers. Um, and that arm length determines the sensitive frequency range. So the larger the arms, the lower the frequencies you're able to detect, the smaller the arms, the higher the frequency. And these three or four kilometers arm length, they kind of determine the, the range that I mentioned before, so the audible range. Um, and with LISA, we're going to space and the arm length is much, much larger. It's two and a half million kilometers. And that makes us sensitive <laughs> to uh, gravitational waves in the millihertz range. So much, much lower. So if you convert them to sound, to sound you cannot hear them. It's really much, much lower. Um, and that means that we are sensitive to also different sources, right? So you can imagine like, um, so the... the the first detection of gravitational waves was a pair of black holes with around 30 solar masses. Um, so they spiral around each other and then finally they collide. And this collision is where the frequency is the highest and that's what, what LIGO detected. Um, but the, the larger or more massive the black holes or the source in general, the lower the frequency will be. And we know that there are supermassive black holes in like in the center of our galaxy and probably in the center of most galaxies 
which have masses around or above 1 million solar masses, right? So LIGO, we were talking about like 30 solar masses. Now we're a million or up, maybe up to a billion solar masses, which is just a huge, huge, huge difference. And uh, we know that galaxies collide and also these black holes in the center of those galaxies collide probably as well. And LISA would be able to detect those those gravitational waves. So it is not that they are competitors, but they're really um, probe different frequency range, very similar to like um, telescopes. There are telescopes for the visible range, for the infrared range or um, for X-rays. So that's a, a similar concept. But you mentioned that that it will be capable of detecting gravitational waves with a frequency that is higher than LIGO is able to detect. But aren't those the gravitational waves from the merging supermassive black holes a much lower frequency? So does it go higher and lower than LIGO? Ah, uh, did I say higher? No, it is lower. Lower frequency. Okay. Yeah. Lower frequency. So larger yeah. wavelength, lower frequency, maybe if I... Um... Right, right. Into the Hertz range. Right. Um, so then, you know, you mentioned colliding supermassive black holes. Do, do we have a sense of how many of these are happening across the universe at, over any given time period? Um, I, I think there are estimates, but I don't know them by heart. <laughs> right, I think right. pe pe people do estimates on that. Um, and I think the estimates vary also quite a lot, but I, I don't have a number in my head. Right, right. Um, but, but in theory, we will be able to detect them in a fairly large volume of space. Yeah. Um, so, so then, so oh, these are yeah. So these are, um, as I said, essentially galaxy collisions, right? So it's um, it's not that um, we expect such an event in our galaxy. So it's by definition, it is something that is in, uh, much 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 further away. Uh, what else could be detected with LISA? Um, so there are several different sources. So to me, let's say the most interesting or probably the most um, intriguing source would be detecting the gravitational wave background from, uh, from the Big Bang. So just shortly after the Big Bang, so we are talking about fractions of a second after the Big Bang, there were processes um, that probably have created gravitational waves. So among these processes are inflation. I don't know whether probably you've talked about this in your videos as well. So inflation is a hypothesized period very early in the universe where the, where the universe expanded exponentially fast. So really much, much faster than the rate that we're observing now. And this violent process could have created gravitational waves and very similar to the um, cosmic microwave background that we observed that was created 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Um, this inflationary period or also other process in the early universe would create a background that comes to us from all directions in the sky very uniformly. And um, yeah, it's, it's like um, an, an after, afterglow, not afterglow, but uh, let's say um, 
ring after ring or <laughs> from right, the big bang. Right. Yeah. yeah, like the first kind of scream of the universe. Yeah, and and the the interesting thing is that it's of course much much earlier than the cosmic microwave background. As I said, the microwave background was created 380,000 years after the big bang and that has to do with the fact that before that time the universe was opaque to light. So it was like plasma and every photon that would travel It could not travel a, a whole lot. It would bump into um, an electron or a, a proton, proton, or so it was not able to propagate for a long time. But then, at a certain time, when the universe was cool enough and the distance between the particles was large enough, all of a sudden the universe became transparent, and that's where the microwave background was emitted, and that's what we measure today. But that was 380,000 years after the Big Bang. The, the gravitational wave background would be like fractions of a second after the Big Bang. And that would, of course, open up, um, would enable us to probe um, at a completely different scale um, the Big Bang. And that's kind of, the, for me, the most interesting um, thing um, that, that Lisa could potentially pr um, detect. Whether it is... Um, able to detect that or not is still open because there are many models um, for these processes. So I mentioned inflation, but there's also the electroweak phase transition, there's cosmic strings and whatnot. There are many, many models and all these models have free parameters which you can tune and depending on how you choose those parameters, you will create different signatures and you will end up in a different frequency range or a different um, signal strength. And depending on where the reality is, where the universe actually chose to be, um, we might be able to detect it or not. And I know that there was another mission that was that was considered, I've read a bunch of papers about it, that would be like a mega version of LISA. Not the LISA Max that we're about to talk about, but one that would be like 12 LISAs flying in formation, the Big Bang Observer, Big Bang Observatory. And that would really try to nail down these these primordial gravitational waves. Yes, yeah. Uh, I don't know so much about this uh, concept. I know that, that there was a paper, um, yeah, and the, the Big Bang Observer is a, is a frequently um, kind of studied observatory concept. Um, that is, if I'm not mistaken, it, it will observe um, the universe in a similar frequency range as LISA. Um, because the size of the detectors are similar. Um, but of course, with, I think there are tr three triangles, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, except, uh, um, so not yeah, I think not it was 12 one. flying, like a, like a big 12-sided die, right? Like it would be sort of flying in a way that they would be able to, it would sort of be able to detect, as you say, yeah, three triangles, or maybe four, four triangles. Anyway, multiply yeah. that. Um, so, so let's... I guess, what would it take to see the other end of the spectrum, like the ones that are really high frequency, the the neutron stars orbiting around each other, the the supernova with that are exploding asynchronously, the even like maybe white dwarfs in orbit around each other. What would it take to go to high frequency? Um. Yeah, to be to, on really high frequencies, the, we have the ground-based observatories, but there's in this intermediate range between the between LISA and the current ground-based observatories, there are also proposals 
um, that would be space-based, but with a smaller, um, smaller arm length. So detectors with a smaller arm length, and they could be even in Earth orbit because, um, um, yeah, you, you don't need to go to the place where Lisa is um, with, with a smaller detector. Um, there is a Chinese mission. Um, I'm always confusing it. Um, so there's Taikin and Taiji, and one of them, of the two, um, is is one of those uh, smaller, uh, targeting a, a higher frequency range. And, and so, like, I know the advantage of putting your telescope in space is you don't detect trucks rumbling by, you don't detect seismic activity. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to going to to space. But that's interesting that you would you would have short arms, but in space that would give you both that sensitivity, but also be focused on that very specific frequency range. It sounds like it would be a very productive realm of astronomy because, I mean, the thing that really excites me right now about, about gravitational waves and neutrinos is you we're entering this era of multi-messenger astronomy that, that we can see things in the electromagnetic spectrum, but also in gravitational waves and also in neutrinos. And you can kind of triangulate. It's as if you could see things and hear things and feel them at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's right. It's the, this um, era of multi-messenger astronomy that's what's currently really coming in. So for instance, there's also this other mission called Athena, um, which you probably also, um, your listeners probably also know. Um, so that's an ESA mission that is supposed to launch before LISA. Um, but it would be really nice if that mission would have at least some overlap in, in mission time with LISA because that would do exactly what you describe. Um, so um, observe the gravitational waves and the electromagnetic counterpart of the same events potentially. I mean, there are some mysteries in astronomy currently, which are due to the fact that we kind of don't know the distances very accurately. Like if we could get accurate gravitational wave observations of various things, what kinds of mysteries would we would understand, do you think? Um, so it, it, that's not a topic that I work on myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, let's say, um, so th the, um, the areas of physics that we will be able to probe is, for instance, um, general relativity, to, the test of general relativity. Um, because black holes or the supermassive objects that we study um, with gravitational waves typically are really the... Uh, the area where so general relativity and quantum mechanics uh, unite in a sense, right? So qu quantum mechanics is the theory that describes very well all the phenomena at small distances. Um, so the particle physics um, and general relativity describes very well everything that is at large distances. So the, the history of the universe, um, stars and... Um, yeah, but 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 when you go to black holes, um, you put both theories to to an extreme. So you have really super, very high curvature. So theoretically, in the in the center of black hole, there is a singularity, but we don't really know what uh, <laughs> um, whether that singularity really exists physically. 
But by studying these collisions of, of black holes, um, that that is a way to really find out how um, these two theories could work together. Um, I, it's interesting. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's like you're so focused on how do I build this thing? How do I make these detections? And you're going to let the theorists figure out what to do with the data. Um, to be honest, I would like to be involved in the uh, in um, <laughs> in the data analysis as well. Um, right now, I'm more, uh, as you say, I'm um, so my main job is to be uh, I'm responsible for the orbits for the orbit calculations of LISA, and um, and slightly also I'm working on the um, contribute to the instrument side. Um, but you cannot do everything at once, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's really such a rich field. So, so let's talk about Lisa Max. And so, this, you know, I'm always looking for not just what's the mission that comes next, but what's the mission that comes after the mission that comes next. And so, when I saw like a proposal for an extension to Lisa, uh, I was pretty excited about it. And the and the ideas in your in your paper are are pretty cool. So, what would Lisa Max be? Yeah. So just to maybe provide some, some context, so the current um, program under which ESA does all the science missions is called Cosmic Vision, Visions, Cosmic Vision, and LISA is in that program. It's the, um, the third mission in that, third large mission in that program. Um, but to, to look into the future, ESA is also looking what comes after, after Cosmic Vision. And so there was a call for proposals um, to the science community. What is what are potential um, missions that is that are worth looking into after Lisa after um, Cosmic Vision is finished? And among the selected science themes is also gravitational waves. Um, and that's why the community is currently studying different potential successors of Lisa. And Lisa Max is a proposal that we um, so that we put forward. That is a detector that aims at much lower frequency. Yeah, not much lower, but lower frequencies than laser. And to to target lower frequencies than laser, as I said earlier, we need even larger arm lengths. So Lisa has an arm length of two and a half million kilometers. If we want to increase that significantly, we have to change the way. So the orbits we put this observatory in, we need to find something completely different. And uh, if you're into astrodynamics and you um, uh, you think about triangles, so Lisa is a triangular constellation. The first thing that comes you comes to mind to an astrodynamics uh, specialist is the Lagrange points. So just to to explain. So the Lagrange well, points my are equilibrium. Is, is so familiar with Lagrange points, like it is. Okay, good. Yeah. Almost every question that I get has 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 Lagrange points in it, but uh, but specifically, which Lagrange points are you looking at? Yeah. So there are this the triangular Lagrange points uh, three, four, and five. So those are um, at one AU from the sun, same distance as the Earth. But they are so the, the three Lagrange points form an equilateral triangle. So and that's exactly what we want for a gravitational wave detector. 
And what is also nice about those points is that the the dynamical environment is very quiet. So there's no big bodies in the vicinity. It's, if you put something there, it will stay there more or less. Um, so, so sorry. So if you put something in the Earth-Sun L4, L5 Lagrange points, those are the ones that are ahead and behind Earth in orbit, and then something at the L3 point, which is on the other side of the sun from the Earth, you get an equilateral triangle between those three points. That's right. Right. Yeah. Wow, like a use for the L3 point. I don't think anybody's ever <laughs> ever thought of that yet. Um, yeah, so to correct maybe a bit, so I said um, if you put something there, it stays there. It's not exactly true for the L4 and L5 point because they're, strictly speaking, unstable. So for over a long time, it will drift away, but the time scale is really, really long, so... And then there's another problem with L3, as you said, you don't didn't know there's a use for it. And actually, it's not so useful because it's behind the sun as seen from Earth. And how do you, com do you communicate with the spacecraft that's behind the sun? Um, and that's why we didn't choose those points exactly, but we shifted the triangle by 5 or 10 degrees. So you can, either works, 5 or 10 degrees. And it turns out that it is still rather stable. So it's not that because you, you move the triangle, uh, you rotate the triangle, that you completely lose that stability. In fact, if you um, optimize the, the orbit and then look at the stability of the triangle over a mission duration of 10 years, it's even more stable than LISA. So just to give you an idea. Wow. Like comparatively speaking, with 150 million kilometer arms or however long they, the triangle arms are, you've got it just like compared to Lisa with its 2.5 million, you are more stable. Yeah, I have to define what more stable means. So more stable yeah. means when you measure the, the corner angles and um, uh, look how they evolve over time. And for Lisa, the corner angles typically evolve plus minus one degree. So 60 degrees plus minus one degree over the 10 years. Um, that's because we have the Earth perturbation and you're, you cannot achieve a perfectly equilateral triangle. So you have the corner angles change over, um, over time. With plus minus one degree for LISA and for LISA max, we achieve less than 0.1 degree of variation over 10 years. So 10 times better in yeah. sort of less variation of your triangle. Right. Right. And like with L4 and L5, I mean, they're stable. I mean, we see objects trapped in the Trojan regions of the Earth's orbit. We see it in Jupiter. So, but they are, you know, I always describe them as they're like big blobs. You know, they're affected by the gravity of the Earth, the gravity of the moon, the gravity of Jupiter. Like they're not points. And so they're regions that you orbit within. While the L3 one, you're going to be drifting and you're having to constantly add propellant to bring yourself back into into position. So I guess which which of these three is the most difficult to manage your spacecraft at? Uh, you don't have to um, you don't have to correct the orbit actually for L3, neither neither for L3 nor for the other two. Um, so it, it turns out if you if you consider um, um, so you, you have to fine-tune your initial position, that's right. But if you manage to put your spacecraft at a precise point, 
then you don't have to, um, so it it is stable. What we haven't investigated yet, how does that stability deteriorate if we, in reality, are not able to put that exactly at the computed point? So that, that's something that hasn't, uh, hasn't been analyzed in our paper. Um, but um, it has been done for LISA. So for LISA, we, we did that analysis and the, uh, let's say the dynamical environment for LISA is much more, it's clo much closer to Earth, so it's much more dynamic. And if it works for LISA, we would expect it would also work for LISA Max. And if you've got 10 times the room to play with, then that gives you a chance to have this all unfold a little more more slowly than it does in the case of Lisa. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and I'm, I have to mention another thing. So I mentioned the, the breathing of the, of the corner angles, but there's another um, measure of stability which is important, and that's the relative velocity between the spacecraft. So the, the velocity along the connecting line, so that's where the laser will, um, will be uh, going along. And why is that important? So what the gravitational wave detector measures is a change um, in the distance, a tiny, tiny change in the distance between the two spacecraft or the two test masses that are in the spacecraft. And we don't have a, we don't have a fixed triangle in space. It will always move because of the orbital dynamics. There will always be a, um, a velocity between the two. Um, and that's not a problem per se, but we have to limit the range in which the velocity has to um, is allowed to be, because otherwise the beat nodes that are detected in the in the interferometer get out of range of the phase meter. So the phase meter, the instrument that measures the signal. So when you interfere the two lasers, the beat node that's created that's measured by the phase meter, and that for LISA can only measure between 5 megahertz and 25 megahertz. And if your relative velocity becomes too high, um, the signal moves outside that band. And so that's something that we have to um, also watch carefully. And for LISA max, uh, this relative velocity is for the... Um, baseline constellation, let's say, is also lower than for LISA. So it's for LISA, for LISA we have plus minus 10 meters per second velocity, um, variation, amplitude, let's say. And for LISA max, we have plus minus three meters per second. So again, a factor of three, roughly better. Right. That's exciting too. Um, but you are looking at much longer time for the laser to get from spacecraft to spacecraft, like on order of more than 10 minutes yeah. um what d does that is can you still interfere the laser signals with that kind of a time delay um okay this uh the answer is probably yes because the time delay is um so maybe go back to lisa <laughs> once again um even in lisa we don't directly interfere the the signals from two arms what we actually do is we detect or we we measure each arm separately and then on ground we do what's called time delay interferometry and kind of do the interferometry on ground by digitally combining the two lasers and why is why do why do we have to do that um, and the reason is that 
again, the, the arms in the interferometer are not fixed. So if you're on a ground-based detector, the arms are fixed, and if you choose them exactly the same length, you are sure that when the laser travels both ways, comes back, and then interferes, it is coherent. So it will, um, it will interfere, and all the laser frequency noise that is in every laser will cancel out because it has traveled the same distance. But if your laser arms are not exactly the same, which is the case for LISA, so because the arms are varying over time, you don't get this cancellation of laser frequency noise. So that means that if you do, did the same thing as you do on ground, you would actually have a noise in your signal that is much, much higher than this, the gravitational wave signal that you would like to measure. And there is this ingenious concept that was proposed like 20 years ago, which is called time delay interferometry, um, where, you, as I said, you record the signals individually of the laser arms, and then you delay um, um, you delay one of the signals by a certain amount, which is determined by the current distance between the spacecraft. And if you do that right, then you still get this cancellation of laser frequency noise. So that all that is to say, you in any case, you have to um, delay your, your signals um, and interfere them on ground. So if for Lisa Max, you then go to, um, in, you have a much larger travel distance um, so you have a, a natural delay in your um, in your signal path it's not expected to to cause any additional problems so I mean when I think about <clears throat> sorry when I think about say the very large telescope here on earth they're having to interfere the signals from the different telescopes in real time because it's a very small wavelength they're, they're viewing in, in infrared. But when you think about, say, the Event Horizon Telescope, where you had in radio waves with these telescopes all around the world, they were able to just record their data with a very accurate clock and then merge the signals on supercomputer. So with both LISA and LISA Max, you would be recording the signals and then merging them on supercomputer afterwards to tease out the data. Uh, I don't think it will require supercomputers in the case of Lisa or Lisa Max. Uh, I think the Event Horizon, that's an example. Uh, so I, I guess it is a much more complex uh, scenario that you have there. I think the the data analysis that has to be done for Lisa can probably be done on a smaller computer. Um, yeah, so it, it it's doesn't require any... Um, Super right. high okay. fidelity number okay. crunching. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's good. That's exciting. Um, so, so then, you know, this is sort of like all of the technical issues on getting to this telescope. So what does this get us? We've got this telescope that is forming an equilateral triangle between the three Earth-Sun-Lagrange points. Uh, you are with just enormous arms what kind of a gravitational wave observatory have you built with Lisa Max? Yeah, that's the the big question. Is it useful or is it not useful? <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Do we um, need this? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. My, my, um, my default answer is yes, we need this. Bigger <laughs> is better with telescopes. Yeah. Um, it, it's 
it's not a given that it, that it's useful, and that's why we it's not the only frequency range that is studied. Um, currently, the scientific community is studying three different frequency ranges. One is the one of Lisa Max, so below Lisa. One is millihertz, so roughly the same at Lisa, but better sensitivity. And the other is decihertz, so higher than Lisa. Um, and the the goal of this exercise is to determine which of those three frequency ranges actually has the better science case. Which which do we want to propose actually to to ESA um, and to, um, to to build in the end? And of course. To do the decision, we would like to have the LISA data <laughs> because right now we don't actually have a lot of information about gravitational waves, right? Um, uh, but as it seems, we the, the investigation has to be done at this before we LISA flies, of course, because LISA will fly in 10 years, and more than 10 years. Um, and yeah, so to give you one example of a possible benefit or, or po a possible science case of Lisa Max is um, we talked about these large supermassive black holes in spirals. Um, since Lisa Max is more, much more sensitive at lower frequencies, so around two orders of magnitude more sensitive at, at the um, uh, microhertz in the microhertz range than Lisa, it will be able to detect these signals from the supermassive black hole in spirals much, much earlier. So like thousands of years before they actually merge. And if you observe such a signal over a much longer time, you will be able, of course, to be um, to, to measure certain parameters much more precisely than you were able with LISA. And probably there are many, many other science cases which um, I don't know about and we're just... <laughs> um, trying to, to, to find out um, and, and yeah it, it, so to, to me it's not about um, justifying that we have to build this observatory but to find out really what is the most interesting frequency range and uh, what has the most compelling science case and that's the one that should be proposed. And I know that there have been some pretty exciting discoveries with the Pulsar timing network to detect a background gravitational wave signature to the to the universe from all of the various gravitational wave events that are that are happening would lisa max help you get a better sense of that background gravitational wave signal um yeah so the pulsar timing arrays are again in a much much lower frequency range even compared to lisa max it's uh much much lower so it's I can't say a number now, but it's like probably three orders of magnitude lower or, or yeah, even more. So it is very hard to say because, as I said earlier, depending on the model that you choose, um, you will get a, a signal in different in a different frequency range. And it's it's possible that you can detect it with a pulsar timing array, but not with Lisa Max. It's possible that you can detect it with both. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's very difficult right. to say. No, but it, but it does sound like like you've got a spectrum of gravitational waves yeah. with the pulsar timing array being at the very limit on the large end of the spectrum. And then you've got these short-armed space telescopes that are finding the really quick ones, the, the white dwarfs circling one another. And then you've got sort of this nice 
range in between from ground-based observatories like LIGO to space observatories like LISA and then LISA Max, fit, you know, filling in that gap between the pulsar timing array and LISA. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as you say, you might get to a point with Lisa where they're just like, oh, we almost saw a hint of primordial gravitational waves. I wish there was a way we could see more. And then, you know, you just sort of put your your paper in front of everybody again and wait. I mean, okay. Like, and I know you can't say this, but it sounds to me like lisa max might be a better idea than lisa is that possible in that it in that it solves a bunch of problems that lisa has had to be engineered for could it do um, the work of lisa and and minimize some like what's the big downside of, of lisa max it's not clear that's better in all respects so first of all as i said it's again a different frequency range so in that sense it's complementary it doesn't replace what Lisa does because also maybe I haven't emphasized it before. Um, it is more sensitive at lower frequencies, but that gives a penalty at the higher frequency. So you're less, less sensitive above one millihertz. Lisa is more sensitive in that range. So you might miss out on that frequency spectrum. Um, and there's another issue that is currently being investigated, which is which we have with Lisa Max, but not for Lisa. So the LISA detector, um, it's a triangle and it rotates, so it um, moves around the sun once per year. And as it moves around the sun, it also rotates around the constellation center. And also because it's inclined by 60 degrees relative to the ecliptic, over the year, the triangle changes the orientation um, and kind of sweeps out the sky. And because the detector has an antenna pattern, so very similar to an antenna pattern of a well, um, a radio antenna, it's has a certain. It's more sensitive towards one direction and less sensitive to other directions. Um, when you sweep out the sky, um, you get to see different locations in the sky. One thing and the other thing is um, that allows you to localize the source. So how does that work? With Lisa, it works. Um, by observing one source over an extended period of time. So let's say um, you observe one source in a given direction and um, at a given point in time, it enters a certain, um, a certain part in the antenna pattern. At a later point in time, it will hit a different point in the antenna pattern where it is, the signal is lower. And if you record the evolution of the signal strength, you get a certain signature over one year. And if you look at the source in a different direction, that signature will be different. I understand. So so in that, that Lisa is, I mean, you know, when you see the animations of Lisa, it looks like this kind of tumbling triangle that's moving in orbit around with the Earth as it's going around the sun. And so depending on the configuration, both of that triangle, as well as where it is on that orbit around the, the sun, you're getting to look at this same object at different times in different ways. And if it's taking a little longer to unfold, then you're getting really precise measurements where you're taking advantage of the different configurations of the of the spacecraft. Um, not only that, but also you're able to tell where is the source because um, the position in the source determines um, the signature of the signal strength of the amplitude of the signal. 
Um, and so you, you have the sky localization capability with Lisa. And since you don't have this uh, processing motion uh, with Lisa Max, because Lisa Max is confined to the ecliptic plane, it only rotates as a whole around the sun, but in, in one plane. And so at this point, it is not clear are we able to localize objects as well as we can do for LISA? And that is a big issue if we, if we, if we cannot do that. Um, like I remember when, when LIGO first came online, they could tell whether the signals were coming from the, this hemisphere of the sky or that hemisphere of the sky. And it wasn't until the Virgo Observatory came online in Europe that they were able to add a much more precise three-dimensional picture of, of where the source of these events. Yeah, I think they do it kind of a bit differently because they use a sort of triangulation because then they have two detectors and then the wave arrives at different times and then that gives them some information. Yeah, and it is, of course, important to localize um, the source, first of all, um, because if you know where the source is, you can um, tell the electromagnetic observatories where to point. And also it gives you... Um, um, it, it lets you distinguish different sources. So for instance, if you, if you measure a gravitational wave background that comes from all directions uniformly, um, localization capability enables you to distinguish that from a very localized source, of course. Um, so it, it is important um, to have that capability. It's you know, my, my audience is quite fascinated by the idea of interferometers, and mostly it's about making really big telescopes. Um, could this orbit configuration be used for other wavelengths? Could, could we create a version of the Event Horizon Telescope that is recording in radio waves from those three positions as opposed to gravitational waves? That would be a completely different concept. I mean, the the whole sure. setup of the so you, you mean um, putting three radio telescopes on these three positions, mm -hmm. um, recording I, data, <laughs> sending their sending their data home to Earth, having a supercomputer crunch it, having a base, you know, having a baseline that is a hundred and I don't know how long are the arms. I'm trying to think, um, do my math here. Two hundred fifty nine like, million kilometers. There you go. Two hundred fifty nine million kilometer. Uh, baseline. Yeah. Is there value there? Is that possible? Um, okay. I'm not familiar with, with the radio telescopes, but I guess what will be an issue is the size of the telescope that you need to put there, right? They have to be much larger than what we need for a gravitational wave detector. Mm -hmm. um, and large telescopes mean, of course, high mass, and that's expensive to launch into space. Um, I guess that's the primary issue, but um, <laughs> I'm not an yeah. expert on the on the. But but I guess like that drift that's coming between the three telescopes rule out any kind of real time interference between the signals. Like you couldn't do what they're doing with say the very large telescope, where you are interfering the signals from each other to make a telescope that is 259 million kilometers across, like. You're not going to get interferometry unless you do it. I mean, I'm not familiar enough how the they how the um, um, how they do it with the Event Horizon Telescope. Um, 
I mean, very accurate you, you, clocks, you a, and then you know, they number crunch it, right? Yeah. Like, you, like you have a you have a drift with uh, with if you have this triangular constellation, but maybe if you know precisely how the drift is, how you can predict everything very precisely, and you can estimate the clocks on board very precisely, maybe that information is sufficient to still use that. Um, but I'm, I'm yeah. yeah. Speculating. Now, now you had mentioned earlier on that you had proposed, you had sent in this proposal as part of the Cosmic Visions. Was it the twenty fifty call? It is called. Uh, um, sorry, it's called um, Voyage twenty fifty. But it doesn't That's mean right. that it yeah. is. It is for twenty fifty. It is covering the time frame between thirty five and twenty fifty. Yeah, it's just in the name. No, I've, that I've mined the that Cosmic Visions twenty fifty over and over again because there's such great ideas in there so so what's next i mean you've you've delivered your paper is it just gonna you know you've sort of thrown it out there and you're gonna get back to work what what do you hope happens next so the paper is not a proposal yet it's just a paper it's published like um any other paper um we are currently working um with the lisa consortium so there are currently three working group in the consortium who study the three different frequency bands um, to come up with a uh, concept and a proposal to ESA. That would be an, an actual proposal. Um, and the Lisa Max is an input for that. And we hope that a lot of the work that has been done for Lisa Max, um, we can use for that proposal as well. But the, yeah, as I said, the actual proposal will come uh, pro hopefully beginning of next year. And then typically what happens in ESA is when, um, when the proposals are done, um, some of the selected proposals go into the concurrent design facility, the CDF. So that is a concept to study a mission, um, a feasibility study, which within a limited time frame of typically two months, um, where you sit together with all the different experts from all the different subsystems of the spacecraft. So the configuration, the propulsion, the thermal, the trajectory, um, everybody who's involved in, a, in the mission design and you come up with a overall concept for, for the mission and you identify potential showstoppers and challenges and you do cost estimate and and th that's probably what will then happen if one of those um, proposals is successful. Um, and I, I have to also say that um, so that proposal would go into the L6 slot so that would be a large mission L and 6 for the 6th large slot. <laughs> Um, and th the theme of that slot is not only gravitational waves, but also um, it's in general the early universe. And so we would compete probably with proposals from the cosmic microwave background community. So, well, uh, Dr. Martins, good luck with uh, this. It's an exciting concept, and it would be wonderful to see those signals from the beginning of the universe itself. That would be quite exciting. I agree. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Vlad Shipelin, Jay Dennis, David Giltanen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.